Welcome to the second series of year-end clips where we share some of our guests' reflections. Over the last 12 months, we've had the privilege of interviewing some extraordinary people and have been inspired by their passion, insights and wisdom. Here's just a few. We sat down with partner at Pentagram, Emily Oberman, in episode 53 to discuss the importance of cultivating a distinctive character. I think you'll enjoy our answer. I feel like my parents instilled in me from an early age, and I have clung to it, the idea of being a beautiful weirdo. I love that term. Have you got that in your business card? <laughs> I will now. <laughs> that is the kind of person I hope to be, the kind of people I'm drawn to. That's my idea of a special human being, uh-huh. is where you're sort of okay to embrace the off. And that, I think, is something that my parents looked for at every turn. When I go on vacation, I buy my presents for people at the supermarket where I can find something that's funny or interesting or beautiful or in a perfect world, all three at once. It's hard when you're coming back from vacation with a suitcase full of canned goods. But (laughs) so I think that the idea of oddness is really important in what I look for. And, And my favorite thing is to find oddness in the most normal places. Like to meet someone who you think is incredibly normal, but then underneath there's this irreverence, there's this joy, there's this strangeness that you find that is always like, that is always a spark. Sometimes it's a client, Mm -hmm. sometimes it's a friend. Happily, it's my children, my husband. Like we all sort of share that goal of beautiful weirdness. That's just a lovely approach and attitude to, to life and development both in work and and at home. I was going to say, before you mentioned your children, is it something that you actively try and foster in them, that slightly non-conventional, obtuse way of approaching life? 100%. Like, we are are pushing that agenda. (laughs) That's good. (laughs) I may get accountants because of it. It's going to be really interesting. They're going to rebel and be incredibly boring. But that doesn't seem to be the case yet. When we visited Michael Ventura in episode four, he explained his model for applied empathy, something many of us could benefit from. So empathy unto itself is passive. Mm-hmm. I could understand a lot about you and do nothing with it. And so in, it is only in the application of empathy that you can affect change. So the applied is so critical to the way we think about it because otherwise it's just information. It's not being acted upon. The process that we've undertaken really looks at trying to create a system model for eliciting understanding. So human-centered design often puts, typically puts the uh, end consumer in mind or the end recipient in mind and then designs for that person or that group of people. That for us is a leg of a stool, but not the entire stool. And that's why we, we look at our design thinking approach a bit more ecosystemically. And there's no right or wrong. There are plenty of great ways of designing purely for the end user and being successful. But in our work, we have to take the end user, but we also have to take a whole other constituent group of folks in mind as we design for that. So that includes, I mean, typically our process starts with this three circle Venn diagram, right? And the first circle is the company. Who's our client? What makes them tick? What's their mission, vision, values? Who, what kind of people work here? What do they care about? What are their products? Are they good or are they bad, right? You know, all of that sort of stuff. 
The second is the consumer. And we don't just mean the end consumer, which is important. And often there are many end consumer archetypes, but then also who else consumes information from this company that might be current employees, might be mm -hmm. prospective new employees, might be the media shareholders, board, whatever. What do they all want? Because I guarantee you, they don't all want exactly the same thing from them, right? The, a reporter from the Financial Times and a potential new employee and, uh, and the chairman probably want 70% of the same information, but 30% is going to have to be bespoke to them if you want to really empathically connect. So figuring all of that out. And then the third circle is context. And we think about what's happening in the world around us, what's happening that's, that's affecting those consumers and that company that we should be paying attention to. And that might be as, as near as a competitor. It might be a little further removed as an indirect competitor, someone who's vying for attention, but not necessarily making the same products. Uh, it might be a trend like internet of things or future of cities or something like that, that's going to impact their business in the long run. And so we bear all of those things in mind and the intersection point of those three things and where the sweet spot in the middle is, that's where the gold is. When we met Dr. Merritt Moore in Boston, episode number 14, the world-class ballet dancer and quantum physicist, we asked her about how she broke through cultural and societal conventions and barriers using a personal mantra. Her insight and answer is valuable and timeless. My mantra was, I am free and I give hope. So ah. it kind of, I guess, summarized what I was writing down in the goals. And, but mostly it was kind of a reminder to myself every day that I'm free of stereotypes. I'm free of prejudices. I'm free to screw up and fail. I'm free to just be me. I'm free to do nothing or I'm free to do whatever I want. Like it just kind of opened, you know, it just made me in control of what I was going to do that day. And then the second part of my mentor was like, so I am free and I give hope. So mm. the part of that was yeah when it's tough and I don't want to do it I'm, I'm kind of lazy if it's for myself but if there's a thought that any step forward that I take in proving that it's possible to do both science and the arts and that that you can start late and that you can be a female in science or whatever it is that any step forward that I take possibly gives hope and inspiration to someone else who is probably far more talented and, and can do it much better than myself and just needs that little example. And so that's kind of spurs me forward for, you know, the difficult hours mm -hmm. of being in the lab and late at night, you know, in the studio. Roberto Roban, episode 50, the 60s and 70s photographer of rock and roll icons, reflected on the parallels between the world today and the countercultural movement that he experienced in the 60s. A fascinating insight and hope for the future. But it was all about documentation of our culture, and it was also about being able to advance ideas and philosophies that we were feeling. It was a consciousness of what we were doing. Mm -hmm. And it became obvious that we had a big effect on, on, uh, on society in general because the government started to crack down. They were noticing that kids were thinking, They're, and that was the dangerous thing. They were pushing the envelope because the status quo was really not satisfying to us. We had racial issues. We had feminist issues to look at. We had the war in Vietnam. We had a lot of things that we were looking at that were wrong. We just know it's wrong and we need to change it. That's what was happening. It was a revolution uh, worldwide, but it was centered around like San Francisco, New York, Paris to some degree, Amsterdam, London, certainly. So we had something to say and we were going to say it regardless. Okay, It was fearlessness. Mm -hmm. That's what we had. Okay, And I, I kind of miss that today because to me, we are at a place where we were back then. 
I was like, about to ask you. I'm just saying, are you seeing a sort of a, a, an arc? An arc, uh, yeah. It's, it's, where we're seeing the yeah. emergence of a, a new youth who are uh, Yeah, it's the new youth that's being aware of what that's what's wrong mm -hmm. and addressing it in a very wonderful way. I mean, our latest person I love, I absolutely love, is Greta yeah. from um, from Sweden. Uh, yeah, Sweden. Uh, she's one of those people like us that saw that something is wrong and she's going to address it. Yeah. Come hell or high water, and she's in your face, honestly, and you can't deny her. You can't deny what she's saying is correct. Mm -hmm. You can pretend, you can be willfully ignorant, but you can't deny it. Okay, and so that was us back then. She's that person today. So to go back to that that period, those seminal years from let's say the '67 through to about let's say early '70s. Mm -hmm. What what brought to the end that cult, counter cultural movement, that re youthful rebellion? What brought it to an end? Yeah, why do you think it ended? Why I do don't think, think it really ended. I think it transitioned. I wouldn't call it an end at all because it's still around. We're still dealing with a lot of those same issues today. We've moved certainly and now. We have, you know, men are able to marry each other, women are able to marry each other if they want to. Um, we have had a black president. You can wear your hair blue, green, yellow, whatever the hell you want to do. You can, you know, do whatever you want to because we broke those grounds. We were able to show that, hey, the world is still spinning regardless of the fact that I married a woman who's white or that I married a guy that I love, or, or um, any such thing that we couldn't do before because of some artificial construct. Yeah. Well, we broke all of those rules, and the world is still spinning. Nothing happened that was, you know, the world didn't explode, which was this giant fear. So the fact that we were able to go through all of the changes, to be physically beaten in some cases, to be killed, to be harassed, to be called names and all, because of why? We don't know, like, what the hell, why can't you do that? What's, what, what's the problem? It's still going on, and right now we're in a situation where I consider it kind of like the heart of darkness. We have to make a choice. It's like go, Joseph Conrad's uh, book is apropos for this age because there's this darkness that's descended upon us, and it's descended upon us because there's some people who never got the memo, as it were. The world is changing. It's not your world anymore. It was, it was screwed up. It was bad. Back in the day, we made it better, but why are you insisting on going back? Because you feel entitled. So there's this sense of entitlement that we've always been fighting. That's what, to me, the whole cultural tension that exists is because there's some people who feel that they're entitled. Mm -hmm. And to me, they're entitled because they're overcompensating for their lack of self-confidence, uh, because of their lack of sense of compassion for others. And somehow they think that if they are in control, the world is a better place. Mm -hmm. It really is not. It belongs to all of us. It doesn't belong to any one particular group. Finally, author of the Bullet Journal, Ryder Carroll, in episode 9, discussed the importance of understanding passion, curiosity and purpose. It's a great answer. I think you need a purpose in order to understand why you're doing what you're doing. And then the next part is to figure out how you can be as consistent as possible working towards those things. You're not necessarily passionate about everything from the beginning, right? So at least one way that you can start to cultivate passion is by cultivating a smaller curiosity. So if you're interested in something, it doesn't mean that everything else has to stop and you're going to work on this the whole time and you're going to just like risk it. Uh, that works for very few people. In my own experience, I think what's 
important is like to cultivate the things that naturally draw you out into the world, things that you're interested in and not to beat yourself up for not being this incredibly passionate individual who, you know, you see on TV and then the movies and, you know, these, these artists or creatives or, you know, these maniacs that do these incredibly dramatic things in order to do what they love. That's very rare. I feel like, and I think we judge ourselves by that. It's like, I don't have that, you know? Does that mean I just don't care about anything? And I feel like that's not true either. There's a spectrum of curiosity. Mm-hmm. On one end, it's kind of like, hmm, that's interesting. And on the other end, it's, you know, cutting off your ear. You know, there's, there's like <laughs> a very, there's a big gamut. And I think it starts, and we can cultivate that. Because at the beginning, when you're curious about something, it offers, it promises meaning, right? There's something there. You don't know what but it's it's calling you and the, it that probably means that it'll you think that it might reveal some truth or purpose or meaning but it's going to take a while to get there so i feel like you just start by figuring out how you can spend a little bit more time to cultivate your curiosity without taking any dramatic measure and over time as you begin to learn more about this subject matter you start to zero in on the thing that does interest you and i feel like the closer you get to that the more passionate you can become Mm -hmm. as you start to realize what it is that is actually holding your interest the thing that it actually appeals to you and that takes time and it takes work and i think it's not an all or nothing pursuit like start with little projects you know you're interested about playing guitar or cooking or something it's like okay well start with you know 10 minutes a day something like that and you work towards it and then in my own experience one of two things happens right you learn more about it and you realize actually it's not that interesting or it was a short-lived curiosity which is fine and then you can go back get back to your life mm-hmm. or then there's the other part right where all of a sudden you realize there's something here and I want more of it and I want to understand more about it and I want to learn more about it. And then because you have started the process of learning, you will know where to start to direct your efforts and continue to cultivate your curiosity. Of course, if you're super passionate about something, then you have to figure out how you can spend the most amount of time doing that without sabotaging the rest of your life Mm -hmm. and that becomes the challenge right it's like i need to pay my bills but i all i want to do is play guitar all day long yeah so how do you navigate that and that's also a process of you know taking small steps of figuring out how to be able to spend as much time with the thing that you believe in and less and less time with the things that you don't okay that's all for now and we wish all our listeners all the best for a spectacular 2020 see you next time